Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Institute for International Development podcast. I'm Richard Robinson and today I'm talking to Dr. Daniel Hammer. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. You've been working on a collaborative project to identify 100 critical research questions that address issues related to development policies, practices and institutions. How did this project come about? The project emerged out of a conversation between some other colleagues of mine. I wasn't the lead on this, so to be honest, it was, it was their, their brainchild, their baby. Um, and it was driven by Jean Grugel and Johan Alderkop and, and some other colleagues who, in light of the shift from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals, wanted to raise a set of critical areas of reflection. In other words, how do we realise sustainable development and how do we realise the SDGs? But how does research contribute to that? What are the questions that, from the grassroots, from institutions, civil society, organisations, citizens around the world, what are the questions that they need answering to help help them realise sustainable development? What is the importance of having an international development framework? Okay. So the questions we asked to people all over the world through various media, new technology, old technology, social media and so on, we would say, what are the key questions that you have? What are the questions about development that you think are the barriers to or the issues that need to be addressed for us to realise the SDGs? So it's a very open consultative process, and then with those responses, we brought together an array of stakeholders into Sheffield from all over the world, from each of the continents, and a range of different backgrounds. Built them together, come up with new questions that are drawn out from the existing ones that have been given. What are the 100 key issues that need to be addressed to tackle these things initially? And those groups work together then to prioritise certain questions. The importance of them is twofold. One is to make a statement about the importance of research for development. If we rush into any project, be it related to international development or elsewhere, without an understanding of the context, uh, history, and other factors that influence the success or otherwise of an intervention, we often see failures or limited efficiency of impact and, and intervention. The second part to it was really saying the SDGs were developed as a key set of, of indicators and help us think and talk about development, but many people around the world perhaps weren't included in that process as an attempt to allow people to engage with sustainable development from all over the world. So it brought together different perspectives and allowed people and civil society organisations and so on to make claims as to what they saw as being the key barriers. So it helped, hopefully, not only academics and researchers, but policymakers and civil society organisations identify key topics or emerging areas that need more thought, need more intervention to try and promote the Sustainable Development Goals. Did any ordinary, everyday people have any say in the decision-making process? It was definitely designed as an inclusive process. So the way it was set up was this call-out, very much using a range of media to try and reach beyond, if you like, the urban elites, the urban academic, the liberal elite and so on say to people, okay, what are the key issues that face you, your communities, what's the burning question you have about development in your area, in your region, or, or more globally? And that process brought in hundreds and hundreds of questions from people from all walks of life. Various of those people were then involved in the consultative process in Sheffield to turn those hundreds of questions into the final 100. And ultimately, you, you try and make things as participatory as possible in this situation, but it wasn't possible to bring together everybody who'd contributed to that discussion. But there were a range of stakeholders from across the world who did come and participate in that. 
how did you go about collating the information that was gathered in terms of grouping them and differentiating what were of low and high priority? Well, this is a very long process okay. on a few very warm days, like a few summers ago. So we'd, we'd had the questions all be sent in, and a group of people, work, core kind of project team, included all of those questions and sifted them into very broad categories to do with, for instance, environment or technology or health, education and so on. And then during the two-day workshop in Sheffield, the people who were participating in that were tasked with trying to turn a list of anything from 30 or 40 through to several hundred questions into a short list of 10 or 20 questions, which were then put through another panel discussion to try and prioritise the ones that were seen as being the key priorities. Ultimately, that process had a subjective element to it. We can't include everything, uh, but certainly any questions that appeared in multiple times in kind of very similar guises, similar wording, were seen as perhaps becoming more prominent, um, but it was a process that tried to consult between different stakeholders from different parts of the world and their different readings of what the key questions being raised were. Did the questions in themselves present any limitations? The consultative process was primarily done in English, so clearly there's a, there's a question there. We did try and we did have submissions in different languages, we did work across language barriers, but we was an issue on that side in terms of the process, I guess. But the more importantly, you're saying the kind of the challenges of the questions that were raised themselves. The challenge is they're always going to be open for debate. People will always have different opinions on the priorities, and at times you've got to engage with those questions in a very sympathetic manner to different kind of political contexts or the sensitivity of wordings of different terms according to different cultures and language groups. So. There was a series of, of challenges in working with uh, such a wide range of questions. With regards to the different priorities, did you find that there was a global north-south divide when it came to priority setting? I don't recall there being one. I think it was a very open discussion. I don't recall there being a specific strand of thought from either the global north or the global south that differed tremendously. Some of the more nuanced aspects of it certainly were likely to have changed to an extent, but there wasn't perhaps an expected drive towards, if you like, technology as a saviour for development from one sector rather than another. It was more of a, a critical set of questions about what are the challenges that people are facing on the ground and how do we work with that. But in that process, to also remember that the sustainable development goals were not just focused on the Millennium Development Goals of the Global South about the idea of sustainable development as a global phenomenon. So many of the questions that perhaps emerged initially from contributions from the Global South actually then being recognised as equally important or, or equally as valid in context of the Global North, you can look at any city and see evidence of inequality and the lack of service delivery or access to services, be that in Sheffield, be that in Sao Paulo. And I think that was one of the really interesting parts of that process was recognising the interconnections of those questions that were coming out that weren't just rooted in one particular part of the world but spread around a global sense. There was a 5% response rate from organisations based in Africa, Latin America and Asia-Pacific. And so this was relatively low in comparison to the levels of engagement from North-based institutions. Does this mean that specific regional and sub-national contexts will be viewed from a global North vantage point? There is undoubtedly the danger of that. Um, I guess the response there would be many of the people who were involved from the Global North 
were either maybe from uh, you have several colleagues who were based in Sheffield or elsewhere who were born and raised in parts of Latin America and elsewhere who were part of this process who brought that, was that perspective to it but also many people from the global north who have worked and lived extensively overseas so there is that danger um, but one way that, that was hoped to be counteracted was a longer term project where the 100 question activity would be taken to other parts of the world and based in other regions and I know that that was taken and done in, in Latin America um, I wasn't part of that process I've not seen the findings but that concern about ensuring there is a, a more equitable voice through the process did then lead to a secondary set of activities aimed at dealing with precisely what you said, making sure that the paper didn't emerge as and result in a very much a northern dominated discourse around research and development. There were 102 questions that were submitted which didn't quite fit the prescribed themes. Mm-hmm. Does this tell you anything about the current state of development? I think it just tells us that it's complicated and a jigsaw puzzle that, that is almost impossible to put together in a simple and understandable way. We can take any arena of policy or intervention and trace through unexpected as well as expected implications and impacts onto other sectors. So often these areas would cross-cut themes, but equally there are themes that emerge at the last minute or emerge over time, emerge in ways that we don't recognise as being important initially but come to the fore. 30, 40 years ago, if you tried to do work on ICT for development, it would be in a very different field to how it is today. So I think perhaps the underlying message is, yes, development is complicated, but it's also dynamic and changing. And there is always a danger that if we get too stuck in a specific mantra or approach to what development is, it gets left behind or it doesn't meet the needs and desires of people in the present day. Is the world of development experiencing major difficulties worldwide with all these changes? Is that why the 100 questions were created in the first place? Development faces a challenge at the moment in terms of the global economic context and in terms of the political context in many donor countries where there is often a retreat away from helping others, away from an internationalist perspective and more towards a, a much narrower perspective of the world and a protectionist view of, of nationhood and citizenship. I think that is really where the key, one of the key barriers lies, is in challenging that in terms of the question of care for distant others, in terms of responsibility towards others and, if you like, the notions of citizenship that is a global citizenship and um, some people might talk about a cosmopolitan view of the world, others might talk about those concepts of, of caring for others because we are all part of one community, one humanity. The 100 Questions, I think, gives us a, an insight into specific areas where challenges remain, and some of those are very well established in terms of equity of educational access or education outcomes or issues relating to gender equality. But others were certainly newer or more unexpected areas that were coming through in that process because, as I say, things change. Is this development framework helping you with your current work? What are you currently working on? Okay, so the questions themselves certainly help me think further about some of my interests. And in terms of some other work around civil society capacity building, it's been useful to be able to think about how the questions that come out from that research and from the capacity building activities resonate with some of the concerns or questions raised around perhaps more kind of issues of governance and politics in development from the 100 questions. One of my projects works with an organisation called World Merit who try and engage with and promote 
an active or an activist youth citizenship around the world that seeks to promote and realise the sustainable development goals. And so the 100 questions were very useful for me in terms of developing some of the training materials and activities we've used in those activities, but also for me in terms of thinking about the questions I want to ask those young people who are involved with that process, as well as the organisers of, of World Merit. So in that sense, yes, it's helped me think about what are some of the key barriers to, to activism, to young people becoming involved in the sustainable development goals in terms of questions of access, of education, of language and the understanding of what development is or means. The kind of question has been useful in terms of my thinking about what, what are some of the bigger challenges. So what's come out from that research very interestingly has been a set of questions, perhaps young people asking me to rethink the questions in a different way, so almost the inverse of, of their discussions either in peer-to-peer -peer interviews where they've, they've interviewed each other and explored ideas and, and common or disparate understandings of development, as well as my own interviews with um, some of those young people. And the sense that many of them are engaged with development or are concerned with issues around development and the kind of collectivity of, of the global sense of identity but, and in keeping with some of the 100 questions, concerns around representativity, around differing conceptions of development, and importantly around the question of for whom development is done and by whom what development is, is determined. So for many of the young people, almost a sense of, not distrust, but healthy scepticism towards what was seen at times to be tokenistic efforts to engage youth in or represent and have a youth representation on discussions and councils and so on about development questions, be they to do with the environment, be they to do with politics, be they to do with education, a real sense or demand for a greater voice, a greater presence and a meaningful voice for, for young people who were committed and engaged with these questions to be heard, to be listened to and to actually be able to make a difference. On a more abstract or broader sense, perhaps we've seen that more recently, the growing wave of, of young people questioning and asking for more voice in different sectors. Do you have any idea what is behind this healthy scepticism and does it vary from nation to nation? I would love to find that out and hopefully in time it will come to the fore. I think the reason behind the healthy scepticism that from the people I've spoken with was a sense that young people felt they were treated as being a bit stupid, as a bit naive, as not being ready to be citizens of a nation, let alone of the world, when those young people themselves very much felt that they were. They may not have the same mannerisms, the same language, the same experience of those who are in very senior positions or, or government and so on, but they had a different perspective and one they felt was largely sidelined or ignored. Um, and I think we've seen various events in recent years where young people have tried to have their voices heard and it's been either ignored or it has been included in a tokenistic manner which has been recognised for what it is. And various examples were raised by young people in the interviews I did last year around that, some very harrowing um, stories that gave a sense of, yeah, we, we know that we're not being listened to, we know that people say we're listened to, but we don't feel like we are. And that perception of what reality is was fascinating. Very interesting. Can you go back to telling us a little bit more about the RCN project? Okay, so th this project in, in Rwanda has been working with a Belgium-based 
NGO called RCN Justice et Democratie. And for the last 18 months, two years, um, I've been contributing to a Swedish development CEDA-funded project through which um, RCN have been trying to assist civil society organisations in Rwanda who work in the justice sector to expand capacity in order to support issues around transitional justice and development in Rwanda. And purely by coincidence, I became involved with this project and contributed quite extensively to the development of a series of training workshops and capacity building sessions in conjunction with RCN but also with three core local partner NGOs who've led many of the workshops and provided much of the input into the process. So it's been a very much a collaborative project where we've worked in various provinces within Rwanda bringing together local civil society organisations and trying to explore questions around the the challenges they face in operating in terms of finding ways for them to collaborate in terms of trying to improve or enhance the effectiveness of their operations. We've done two rounds of training, we're heading towards a third, a national dialogue involving government and donors as well as local civil society organisations where the agenda being put forward through the dialogues we held in Rwanda by the local civil society organisations is taken forward and presented for discussion and kind of dialogue with more senior figures. So what happens when it gets to that national dialogue stage? I haven't yet to find out. It's really an opportunity for civil society organisations to enter into a conversation with with the Rwanda government as well as with various of the international non-governmental organisations and various international donors in the country. It is about ensuring or exploring how civil society, especially in the justice sector, can continue to contribute effectively and efficiently to Rwandan development moving forwards. So there's a real clear sense there's a need to make sure that the engagement with local communities and local society was well evidenced and well based to allow them to then, to allow civil society organisations to mobilise communities, to mobilise support and engagement, but also then to evidence in a very clear and transparent way where their agenda was coming from. That it wasn't being driven by a funding stream from outside the country, but was being driven by a local need, by a local community desire for change or for development and so on. So that really came through as a fascinating part of that work. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just say thank you very much to you for talking to me today. It's been really nice to be able to actually reflect and try and talk beyond the academy for once.